And as you make your way there, I'll tell you it's stiff, weighty, burdensome, and intense. It reflects an aspect of the character of God. He's strong. He's mighty. He's holy. He judges wrongdoing. We love his mercy. We love his grace. There's plenty of that to go around. But we cannot minimize other aspects of his character. He will judge sin. He will judge individuals who have sinned and haven't repented of it. And he will judge nations. Do you think our nation is subject to the judgment of God? Yeah, I think you'll see that reflected in God's response to the nation of Israel. So what we're about to read is not a mere Hebrew lesson, uh, not mere history. You'll see its relevance, I hope, today. So here we go. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, to whom is he speaking now? To Jeremiah, who remains his uh, primary messenger in this book. Thus says the Lord, here's what he tells Jeremiah, go and buy a potter's earthenware jar. Last week, Brother Chuck gave us a great lesson in the prior chapter. This was the image there as well, a potter forming, shaping out of clay, beautiful pottery at his will and in accordance with his desires. Uh, The metaphor of the pot and clay and all the rest continues, but in a different sense. In the last chapter, Jeremiah was a spectator of uh, the handiwork of of an expert uh, potter. Here he is not a spectator, he's a customer. He's told by God to go to a potter and buy a pottery jar. You'll see why in a few verses. But he's supposed to do this. As a sidelight, the word jar in Hebrew here is the word uh, bakbug. bakbug. Uh, and I know you would very much like to say that <laughs> with me. Are you ready? Bakbug. bakbug. Now here's the deal. It means nothing. <laughs> it's a sound. Uh, the name of jar uh, takes this name because it represents the sound of water as it's poured out of the jar. Bakbuk, bakbuk, bakbuk. It's called onomatopoeia. Do you remember that in English class years ago? Onomatopoeia. It's a word with no meaning. It's a word sounding like the thing it represents. Bakbuk. It's a jar, clay, plentiful, used in common daily activities in ancient Israel and even today. Probably five to ten inches high uh, with a long, thin neck, and it contained beverages, uh, primarily water. Uh, Jeremiah is instructed to go purchase one of these and to do so in the company of select others, namely some of the elders and some of the senior priests. In other words, leaders. Go with some of the political leaders of Israel and go with some of the spiritual or religious leaders of Israel. Go with some of the elders, governmental leaders. Go with some of the priests, spiritual leaders. Why? 
Well, the citizenry of any nation has a measure of responsibility for sure with regard to the direction the nation goes in. But the primary responsibility is with the leaders. So God starts with them. His first message from Jeremiah is to the leaders, not to their constituency. He'll get to the constituency, first the leaders, politicians and religious leaders. Take them with you, Jeremiah, and go, verse 2, to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Ben means son. Son of Hinnom is the name of this valley. Who is Hinnom? We don't know. It's named after someone named Hinnom. You can go there in Israel today. So if you can visualize this, you have the old city of Jerusalem and to its south running east to west is a valley. It's the Hinnom Valley. Southern uh, boundary of the city of Jerusalem running east to west and then it creeps up along the western side of the city. So south and west of the city is the Hinnom Valley. If you went there today, it would be unrecognizably different from what it is like here. It's very beautiful today. It's park-like. It's manicured lawns, foliage, beautiful. In fact, it's so beautiful, it's used for outdoor concerts. You can fly kites in it. Kids play in it. It's You would have no idea what took place there centuries ago. If you went there today, and this is what took place there. Terrible idolatry. Uh, primarily consisting of the worship of a Canaanite deity named Baal. You've heard of him? And as part of the ritualized worship of Baal, child sacrifice took place there. It's specifically to a Canaanite god named Molech. Children were burned alive here. And Israel participated in the practice. Isn't that unbelievable? A slave people, freed by God, rejecting God and taking on the gods of the land instead. And then there came a time when Israel had a reformer named King Josiah. He acceded to the throne and effected reforms. And so he saw this terrible degradation in the Hinnom Valley, and he decided to tear down the high places, places of religious worship, get rid of all this terrible stuff. And so he made it the city garbage dump. Made sense. It was a valley. was south of the city. Stuff could just flow quite naturally downhill into it. And so it became a garbage. That's where the city would, it was a landfill. You ever been to one of those? They don't smell good. And uh, they're infested with critters. Crawling, creeping things. And then you burn it and it smells even worse. So can you imagine the sights, the sounds, the smells here in the garbage dump known as the Hinnom Valley? In Hebrew, uh, the word for the valley of Hinnom is Gehinnom. Gehinnom. When you go from Hebrew, Gehinnom, to Greek, uh, you get a word, Gehenna. Ever hear of it? 
It's used in the New Testament. So, so the Old Testament is in Hebrew, and we would read Gehenom. If you translated it to English, it means the Hinnom Valley. If you translate it to Greek, which is the primary language of the New Testament, you get Gehenna. And in the New Testament, Gehenna is a graphic symbol of what? Hell. A very fitting symbol. It is not literally hell. It's a symbol of it. Because hell is described in the Bible as a place of constant weeping, gnashing of teeth, burning, and where the worm does not die. It is an image which the first century recipients would have been well acquainted with. They knew of the Hinnom Valley, the stench, the smells, the fires, the burning, the worms, the insects. I don't know if hell is literally like those. I don't know that. I just know it's quite a graphic symbol uh, of the intense suffering, the torturous experience of being consigned to hell. So this is the place where God tells his preacher to go and preach. How'd you like that call on your life? Go to the garbage dump. Take with you the political and religious leaders of Israel and bring a pot. Bring a jar. Just do it. And uh, you will go to this area which is near the potsherd gate. Where is that? Well, probably in the southern wall, closest to the Hinnom Valley in the south. I say probably because this is the only time in the Old Testament where the Potsherd Gate is named as such, so we don't know for sure. Some people think it is the Dung Gate. Later, the gate there's a gate in the old city of Jerusalem called the Dung Gate, D-U-N-G, because garbage went through that gate. We don't know for sure, but there was a gate, and... Uh, Jeremiah, you're supposed to go there because probably at that gate, potter's shops existed. And these craftsmen and women would fashion uh, their pottery, you know, ply their trade. But if they made something that was with defect, what are they going to do with all the shards? Dump it in the garbage dump, you see. It all is connected. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can see, you can see pieces of pottery all over the place. Uh, I've taken groups and we've just collected it and brought it back. You say, isn't it of archaeological significance? Yes and no. I mean, there's so much of it. It's just like pebbles over there. Just tons of it. So anyway, he's supposed to go to this place and proclaim a message that God will give him. And here's the message in verse 3. Say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle because they have forsaken me. Now let's stop just for a minute. See the phrase in verse 4? Because they have forsaken me. Uh, You have just stumbled upon, in my opinion, the precise diagnosis, the accurate diagnosis of all that has befallen us throughout human history. The human condition is explainable by those words. How did we get where we are today? 
because they have forsaken me. You see, at the beginning point, it was paradise-like, I read, (laughs) in the Bible. And first man and woman lacked for nothing. And then they chose to forsake God. And just that ushered in upon humankind fratricide, one brother killing another. Family dysfunction. You know the dysfunctional family you come from? (laughs) Its roots are in Genesis chapter 3. Family dysfunction. Marital discord. Manipulation, deceit, lying, unsettledness. I mean, all of the ills of society are traced here to this Very accurate diagnosis, because they have forsaken me. Listen, folks, our problem is not economic or political. No, 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 no. those are symptoms of the problem. This is the problem, because they have forsaken me. That's it, right there. Look it. We have run in human history a grand experiment. It's an experiment by which we're trying to live life without the giver of life. How are we doing? We're running the experiment. We tested it out. It's not working. Everything that ails us is due to that phrase. I emphasize it because as a Christian, um, you can know a little more clearly what your role in life is and what mine is. Along with all the other good things we may get involved in, mainly we're here to call people back into submission with the giver of life. We're here to call people to yield to him. Because all that affects us is due to us not yielding to him. Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place. In this case, the Valley of of, uh, uh, Gehenna. They've made it an alien place. They've burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent, probably a reference to children, and have built the high places, religious shrines of Baal, to burn, look, their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Um, So learn something. The God you bow to will determine your values. (laughs) If you bow to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will value life. If you bow to a false god, you will not. They are bowing to a false god, Baal. Idolatry is equated with grotesque immorality. But worship of the true God begets a holy appreciation for the life he has given. You see, if you bow before the giver of life, 
then you don't look to an elderly person uh, in the latter years of his or her life and say, you need to get out of the way because your usefulness has come to an end. You do not support euthanasia because your judgment on the value of life is not a function of its present quality. You do not think that though the quality of one's life may be diminished, the sanctity of that one's life is ever diminished because you're worshiping the giver of life. And on the other end, at the point of conception and birth, regardless of sometimes less than ideal circumstances by which a child is birthed, you still value that life. Even if the life was produced under less than ideal circumstances. You see, if you do not worship the giver of life, if you're worshiping a God of a different sort, then you bow to economics. And you say, this is not a good time. It's not feasible for us financially to birth a child. You see, your God is diminishing in your own eyes the value of life. So you can tell what God you worship by the way you live out your life, what your values are. It's a practical ramification. It's just philosophy. It's how you live. So even at this point, even though a woman may have conceived, even through a terrible imposition, let's say, upon her by a man, you want to rally behind that woman, sympathize. You don't want to look her in the eye and say, I understand. You don't. How can you understand the intensity of that woman's pain but you want to lovingly help her not to compound one evil with another so you want to help her in the direction of alternatives like adoption why because you know the giver of life so so this is ancient israel called by his name and exchanging him for other gods it's not just a you know, choose the God you want. The God you choose will determine how you live. What you think of life. Look what they did. Now, I'm elongating this because I don't want you to think God woke up one day, was in a bad mood because he didn't have a, bad, a good sleep, and he decides to beat up on Israel. I want you to see the extensiveness of their degradation and sin and that a just and holy and loving God has to intervene. He must. Otherwise, he would be compromised in his holiness, you see. So uh, the text goes on. God says, this concept didn't even enter my mind, the concept of child sacrifice. So here's what's on. You can get to such an appointment. Well, you can be so deceived by false gods that you can think the true God is actually pleased by something like child sacrifice. And God is saying, what? I never commanded it. I never mentioned it. It never entered my mind. The idea of human sacrifice is repulsive to God. And therefore, God never, ever, ever permitted it to happen. Is that true? Never, ever permitted human sacrifice to occur. Is that true? When did it happen? On the cross. The only exception to the rule is when God permitted, required, invited his own son to suffer and die in our place. So someone told me not long ago, you know, Stuart, this sacrifice, this blood, this stuff, it's grotesque. It's crazy. 
What kind of uncivilized God would do this? Wait a second. That person is right. It is grotesque. It's repulsive. Most to God. Can you imagine, therefore, more than ever, the amazing grace by which he engaged in a practice absolutely antagonistic to his being and repulsive to him so that you and I could live eternally? It's amazing grace. It's really, really amazing grace. So the text goes on here, verse 6. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth. Topheth means fire pit or stove or place of burning. So Topheth was a specific area in the Hinnom Valley. Got the whole, the totality of the Hinnom Valley, but one specific area, particularly demarcated as the place of child sacrifice or burning was Topheth. This text says, well, days are going to come when the place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but it's going to be called the Valley of Slaughter. Now, this is anticipating the Babylonian uh, captivity. Babylon, ancient Babylon, is located in what modern-day country? Yeah. So the Babylonians... uh, are going to come and God says their siege will be so devastating the place in effect should be renamed Valley of Slaughter. Uh, Verse 7, I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. So let me camp out on that for a second. I'll make void their council. Nations and their leaders take counsel, make plans. They ought to. They make defensive plans. No doubt this took place in ancient Israel. Uh, They caught wind of the Babylonians coming and they would plan a military strategy to protect the citizenry. They would take counsel. They would make economic plans and other such plans. It's the prerogative of government. God said there's going to come a day when I'm going to make all their plans void. I'm going to make it amount to nothing. And so to show you how graphically and seriously God is about this, you see the phrase make void? It comes from the same Hebrew root word as the word for jar in verse 1. Same root word. You know what God's saying? You know that pottery jar thing you use all the time? Just as you pour water from it out onto the ground and it's emptied and amounts to nothing, that's what I'm going to do with your plans. I'm going to empty it upon the ground that if it amounts, you make all the plans you want, but it will not work. I will take away your defense against uh, 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 from those who hate you. You want to hear something horrifying? To be a citizen of a country that can't defend itself from those who want to destroy it. Could we get there? So look at this text. I'm going to make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by those who seek their life. Folks, uh, we have the best military organization in the world. I say this with uh, some degree of uh, personal uh, uh, pride having served, and also I have a son now who even as we speak today is in jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia, getting ready to uh, jump out of perfectly good airplanes <laughs> to be a chaplain with the 86, uh, 82nd uh, Airborne, Fort Bragg. So I'm 
supportive more than you know of the military. I was a chaplain in one for 17 years, 17 years. It's not the weakness of our military. It's God rendering our defensive structure null and void if we don't, if we don't turn to him. And there are people who hate us and want to destroy us. Isn't that a terrible reality? I mean, we just invited one to the United Nations and gave him a platform to spew forth three kinds of venom, anti-American, anti-Christian, and anti-Israel. The leader of Iran I'm talking about. Why those three groups? Because of this. He is not mentally insane. That would be easy. It's worse. He is possessed by darkness. He is demonized. He's possessed by the prince who darkens. Jesus is the author of light. Anti-Jesus. Satan is the author, prince of darkness. He, Ahma Minid, job, whatever his name is, is more dangerous than someone who has a psychiatric problem. For that person, we'll get him some medication. Slip it in his juice. (laughs) It's worse. He's demonized. So, Satan hates America. We've been founded on biblical principles. He hates Israel uh, for reasons I've shared over time. And he surely hates Christ ones. So we give this guy a platform, this guy who wants to destroy us in our way of life and drive in Israel into the sea. And it's a good thing he was able to alert us and explain to us what happened at 9-11. We did it. I'm grateful for our president who, it, in this case, did the right thing and rebuked him uh, publicly for his absolutely outrageous comments. What if we couldn't defend ourselves against people like that who are going to get the bomb? What if our military was rendered impotent? Could it happen? We have already opened our doors to haters of the American way of life. It's amazing to me. It's already a Trojan horse. We do not have to be beaten from the outside. They're here. It's interesting to me. Interesting to me. Um, My son is an army chaplain at Fort Bragg, and the army chaplains are sponsoring a Billy Graham crusade, not with Billy Graham, but with younger representatives of his organization. They come and do worship. They preach the gospel. Uh, the last time he was in on this at Fort Jackson, hundreds of young soldiers uh, went forward uh, to give their life to the Lord Jesus. Now they're doing it at Fort Bragg. So there's a guy named Reverend Barry Lynn, Reverend My Foot, Barry Lynn, whose uh, reverend means worthy of reverence. No way. He's as far from being a born-again believer as uh, the guy from Iran is. He's protesting this event. At Fort Bragg. Shouldn't happen. Military is inviting the community. Shouldn't do. But the community where Fort Bragg is is all military. 
you talking about? It's Fayetteville, North Carolina. Nobody lives there who's not tied to the military. What are you going who wants to live in Fayetteville unless you're assigned to Fort Bragg? Anyway, uh, the three-star general who's the commander of the 18th Airborne Corps, to his credit, essentially said, hang it on your beak. We're having our crusade. Now, he didn't say that because generals got to be much more discreet than I would be. But he essentially said it would be a violation of standards if we obligated our troops to go to the crusade. We're not. We're simply inviting them to participate to the extent that they want to. There are 45,000 people stationed, uh, men, women, and children at Fort Bragg and thousands more in the community. And this group is going to come in under the auspices of the United States Army chaplains at Fort Bragg. Your tax dollar are going to share the gospel blatantly in the name of Jesus. It's really, really good. But what's really, really bad is they're coming under fire. But the Muslim community can take over Dearborn, Michigan. Spew forth in every mosque in this country every time they get together anti-Israel and anti-American propaganda. And if you dare cartoon Mohammed, you better run for cover because they'll kill you. Doesn't sound like a religion of peace to me. I wonder if God's removing our defenses. A mosque in New York on the site? Do you know there's already a thousand mosques in New York? A thousand. I didn't say attack Muslim people. I just said attack Islam. It's a religion of Satan. It's a false religion. Do you know you're an infidel? In case you're looking for your identity, you're an infidel. According to Islam. You have to be converted or killed. It's jihad. I know people keep talking about radical Islam. It's a redundancy. If it's only radical Islamists we have to worry about, why don't the moderate Islamists preach against them? Interesting to me. I wonder if God is removing our defenses. This country built on Judeo-Christian principles. Now a guy like me, preachers, can be brought in on hate crimes if we represent a, bi- uh, a biblical value system. I dare you to challenge the Islamic community in this country, however. I wonder if God is removing our defenses. It could happen. He said, I will make... Look at here. Government is God's idea. It's an agent in God's hand. Government. However... When government has fulfilled its purpose from God's point of view, he can render its counsel null and void. Especially when a government operates at cross-purposes with God's plan, he can render it null and void. I didn't say we're at that point. All the more reason for us to pray. Maybe we are, maybe we're not. I don't know. But that's their job. Oh, God, have mercy on our land. Turn our nation to you. So anyway, that's what God said to ancient Israel. And we don't seem to be doing so much better. So he says, uh, um, verse 8, I will make this city a desolation and an object of hissing. Hissing is an insult. Uh, in the Middle East, it's, it's a custom still, hissing. You know what God is saying? 
your place is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And when people pass by and look at the devastation, you will not get a sympathetic response. Instead, they'll hiss. No sympathy for you, Israel. Verse 9, I'll make them... uh, I wish this wasn't in there. I'm telling you however it is, and so we must read it. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. Is it figurative language? No. Historians told us it literally came to pass during the Babylonian siege. They will eat one another's flesh in the siege. Why did this happen? Well, because the Babylonians cut off the food supply. History tells us cannibalism, therefore, took place. Oh, God, how could you? Wait a second. Wait a second. God has done everything to keep us from the consequence of our own sin. But he's too loving to impose his ways upon us. He pleads. He yearns. He sends prophets. He sent his own son. He does everything to affect our deliverance and salvation. He gives us a book for life. He says, I care about how you live. I don't want to cramp your style. I know how you can live large. Do it my way. And we say, wow. No, thank you. Give me Baal. And God says, I love you too much to constrain you to worship me. I can only invite it. And when we worship everything but, we will devour one another. Then, verse 10, you are to break the jar. So the jar introduced in verse 1, now we find out what God wants Jeremiah to do with it. Verse 10, then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men, the leaders, political and otherwise, who accompany you. So here's a sermon, but an object lesson with it, a visual that God wants Jeremiah to perform. Take this jar and break it. Say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, just so or in the same way will I break this people and this city even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired. In the last chapter, we saw how a a craftsman skilled in pottery, can shape and form even a defective pot while it is still malleable. But when it becomes hardened and drops, it is beyond repair. And that's the message. Israel, you've gone too far. You've crossed the line, the point of no return. I want to ask you a question. Could we cross the point of no return here in America? It's just not a Hebrew history lesson, is it? This is front page news today. We could cross the point of no return. Where repentance, the opportunity thereof, has passed. And now all that's left is the unfolding of God's judgment, which is really simply the natural consequences of our own choices. So God says in verse 12, this is how I will treat this place and its inhabitants, declares the Lord, so as to make this city like Topheth. Topheth was a restricted area of burning. God says, no, when they come, that will characterize the whole city, burning all over the place. 
the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled like the place of Topheth because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burned sacrifices to all the heavenly host and poured out drink offerings to other gods. So here's what's going on. If you go to the Middle East today, you'll see a lot of the homes built with flat roofs. You can do that. It's not like the north in our country. We get a lot of snow, and you wouldn't want to have a home with a flat roof, so they build, you know, slanted roofs. But in the Middle East, you don't get that much snow. It's rare if you get snow at all in the Middle East. So a lot of the houses are built with flat roofs, and they serve a very practical function. Uh, Today in the Middle East, if you go, you'll see a lot of um, reservoirs of water on the roofs. The water system flows down that way. But also people, sometimes families will go up when it's hot and it's a little cooler. You get a breeze up there on the roof. Do you remember in the book of Acts, didn't Peter go up? He was hungry and he went up to eat and then took a little nap and had this marvelous dream up there. And so people sometimes sleep even on their flat roofs. I've been in the Middle East at times and I've seen people actually working out, do exercise. You know, watch Jane Fonda or something up there on your roof. And I mean, it's a very practical kind. You can use it sometimes even as guest rooms. It's above street level, so you have a measure of privacy and all the rest. Now, here's the deal about a flat roof. It's elevated, so elevated that you have a clear view of moon and sun and stars. And when you turn away from the God of the Bible, you find yourself worshiping them instead, the creature instead of the creator, and that's what this verse describes. And so God is going to judge even all the houses. Because look at the use to which they put even their flat roofs. They burned sacrifices to all the heavenly host. Instead of worshiping the God who created the heavens and the earth, they would rather worship the thing created. Hey, don't be so hard on Israel. Welcome to the modern environmentalist movement. Mother Earth is worshiped instead of Father God. Go green and save the world. We don't need you to go red as in the shed blood of Jesus and be saved. You can be a savior. Go green. It's the religion of the day. Jeremiah 19 is happening today, folks. Verse 14, Jeremiah came from Topheth. So please get some of his movement. God said, go to the valley, specifically Topheth. Break the jar there. Uh, Let the leaders see what's going on. Preach to them. But now it says he's moving. Jeremiah came from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. And now he stood in the court of the Lord's house. That's the temple precincts. Uh, The locale of the ancient temple is in the heart of Jerusalem today on an elevated platform on which now sits not a, the temple, uh, but a uh, an architecturally masterful, beautiful structure uh, with a golden dome, the Dome of the Rock, which is the third holiest site in Islam. It's thought to be the site from which Muhammad was resurrected on a horse from that spot uh, to heaven. So next to Mecca and Medina, That side is the third holiest in Islam. And uh, there's no temple there anymore. Interesting uh, what has happened. Anyway, uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, I mean, Jeremiah is told to move 
from Topheth to go, where he preached to the leaders to the temple precincts where he preaches the message to all the people. How'd you like to do this sermon series? That would really give you a favor with people. So here's the deal. The primary onus of responsibility is with the leaders. God says, preach to them first, but not the sole responsibility, preach to everyone, because even the voting constituency is responsible for who they vote for and who they have lent their support. You see what I'm saying? It's awfully convenient for us to target our uh, criticism towards um, people of notoriety who lead us, and it's well-deserved in some sense. But they got there by elected office, not by coup. Look in the mirror if your vote was misplaced. Preach to all the people, he says to Jeremiah there. Verse 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what he's to preach, uh, what Jeremiah's to preach. Behold, I'm about to bring on this city and all its towns the entire calamity that I have declared against it because they have stiffened their necks so as not to heed my words. And there you again have another accurate diagnosis of the human condition. All of this because they've stiffened their neck so as not to heed my words. My fellow Christians, citizens of heaven, do something in the day in which we live. Sure. Uh, several people of late have come to be Stuart. We are not doing enough. What do you want to do? Here's what you do. You're a citizen of heaven too. You do what God leads you to do. And he's going to lead us differently. So for some Christians, you are led to confront the political process. Please do so to the glory of God. For some, you are led to fast and pray. Please do so to the glory of God. For some, you are led to get on a street corner and preach with every ounce of your sincere being the gospel message. Do so to the glory of God. Some are led by God to participate in rallies and campaigns and protests, be it against Planned Parenthood construction down the road or whatever. Do so to the glory of God. Do what he would have you do as you live out the function and purpose of salt and light. Just don't require that every Christian do what you feel led to do. Do something, but don't do what I choose to do and don't make me do what you choose to do. I have to do what God would have me do in accordance with how he's fashioned me. And that's why I'm glad as a church we don't have this party line you know, everyone's getting on a bus and we're going to Washington, D.C. Get on the bus if that's what God would have you do. But don't drag me with you if he would have me do something else. 
let's not judge one another's commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and concerned about the direction of our nation because we're not all doing the same thing. Just do something. And what is it? Don't wait for us to tell you. Take your marching orders, not from Baal, from God. Say, oh, God, if I'm offended by what's going on, how much more you put me to use to turn back the tide, even little old me, in accordance with how you've gifted and equipped me? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's moving to Canada. Have a nice trip. (laughs) They're worse. Do what you want to do before God. But don't wait for a party line. Our army functions differently than a military army. Each member of our army takes direct orders from the commander-in-chief. Ask the commander-in-chief what he would have you do and go do it. Maybe it means to go on a missions trip to take the gospel to people who are otherwise left in darkness instead of a vacation. I don't know. I didn't say do that Everyone should do that. Don't feel guilty if that's not you. Feel guilty if it is you and you're not doing it. I ask you this question and we close with this. Can our nation come to the point where it sins so greatly that God's judgment is inevitable? I think the answer is yes. Are we at that point? I don't know. I'm not that smart. I'm going. We're getting there. I'm going to act now as if we're not at that point and therefore I'm motivated to do some things that God has put on my heart to do to function as salt and light in the world. You work it out with him. That's the nature of a personal relation. It's different than a cult. A cult does what the cult leader tells him to do. A Christian follows the leader. Follow the leader. Just do something. Here's what you should not do. Don't get so aggravated, so frustrated that you can't sleep at night. Because if you're doing that, you're revealing to onlookers that you don't really believe God is seated on the throne. You think you've got to stay up all night because he's asleep at the wheel. But the Bible says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Do you see how aware he was of what was going on in the government of ancient Israel? Go to sleep at night. He's aware of what's going on in high places in our nation and world as well. I didn't say take it lightly. I just said have no anxiety about anything but in everything by prayer. And supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm not going to get so lathered up about temporal passing realities that I lose the effect of ultimate realities. Here's the ultimate reality. Read Psalm 2, which also... Uh, gives us the theme of pottery. It says the nations of the world conspire against God. He sits on the throne and laughs. And it says he can shatter them like a piece, like pottery. (laughs) By the way, that's my dad. That's my father. 
I love his hug. But some are going to get his clenched fist. I want to pray that they would get his hug. And I want to be living proof of a hugging God. Because the option is a judging God. That's the way it is. We've got plenty to do. Don't despair. You know why God gave us Jeremiah? To show us that stuff that surprises us is not surprising to him. It's the same human nature and it's the same divine nature. Take it easy. Victory in Jesus. Hey, you know what? Let's sing Victory in Jesus, just a chorus. You, you know that one? It's easy. Help me because I'm so bad at this. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with what? His. I knew all my. He plunged me to victory. God bless you, victorious ones. See you next week, unless the Lord comes before.